friends and welcome to 40,000 Steps Radio. I'm your host Christopher Heimerman and I am not a licensed healthcare professional, not a counselor, not a therapist, certainly not a doctor. No, but I'm a guy with 777 days of sobriety. The sevens are wild. And I'm a guy with the gumption to put my story out there. So I'm not a doctor, let alone a leader in the industry, but I do have a doctor on the podcast. Matter of fact, Dr. Christian Cable is a leader in the field of oncology and hematology. He's also leading a conversation of prioritizing mental health care for those in our healthcare community. Matter of fact, he was brave enough to come on the podcast and share his story about a full psychotic break that he experienced when he was a teenager. And as always, we flip it to where we are today and we talk about the incredible things that he's doing. Not just in the healthcare field, wait until you hear about the ultra course that he's building in his backyard and the enormous impact that it's going to have in his community. Folks, I'm looking out the window and what do you know, it's a beautiful day to get our 40,000 steps in. So let's get it. Christian Cable thought he was a werewolf. How's that for a teaser, right? When he was in high school, he woke up in the middle of the night. He'd been reading too much Stephen King, and he was convinced that he was a werewolf. He took off all his clothes and went wandering in the streets. He went through this full psychotic break, and in the psych ward, he still remembers now at age 49, he remembers being in the psych ward, looking around at the people affected by substance abuse and other really identifiable on the surface uh, factors that contributed to their mental illness. He remembers looking at them and he initially says in our interview that he was jealous, but later he kind of corrects it. And he says that he was afraid. He was terrified because for these folks, you know, if they were rehabilitated, if they got clean, there was a path to recovery for them. Whereas for him, he was just crazy, right? He was just a broken person. So there was no path to recovery for a crazy person. So he was in and out of psych wards five times. And finally, in the thick of a summer, he prayed for help and the problem was removed, which to me is a mind blow. But that's what happened. And there came a point in the next several months that he recovered and he no longer had to be medicated and he was okay. Isn't that crazy? But because of this, he has a deep understanding for people like me who... When I was a teenager, I couldn't figure out what the hell was wrong with me. I couldn't figure out why I had this infinite sadness and why I got so low and struggled to get out of it. Like I couldn't understand it. So I didn't tell anybody because if I couldn't explain it, you know, how could anybody else understand it, let alone believe me? So he identifies with that and he's compassionate toward folks who battle mental illness. And it's clutch in his profession. It's clutch, not not just with patients, but with his colleagues, because, man, physicians are up against it. I use the word trauma. He prefers to refer to it as suffering. Whatever the proper terminology is, they go through it, man. The day-to-day grind, watching people get sick and not recover, watching families on their very worst days. He's quick to point out, however, that there are triumphs in his line of work. But to me, that that maybe it offsets it a little bit, offsets you know, the amount of pain that they go through. Because of that pain, mental illness runs rampant in the healthcare community. And by and large, historically, the healthcare community has chosen not to talk about it. Because these are the, you know, the are are brightest. They're supposed to be able to rise above. They're on the other side of the examination table. They're supposed to have all the answers, which is brutally unfair. So I am in awe of Christian Cable that he came on this humble little podcast and shared his story about his psychotic break. Because, you know, that sort of vulnerability, that sort of compassion is what is going to advance these conversations so that we can keep just taking a sledgehammer to this stigma that's holding so many people back. You know, because what if, what if, 
What if we had written off Christian Cable? What if we wrote off all of the physicians who are battling or will continue to battle mental illness throughout their practice? Because when they're able to get the help that they need, counseling, medication, whatever they need to be well, those talents are fulfilled and it contributes so much to society. What if we wrote them off, right? What if we considered them broken people? What if the licensure board in asking them on the questionnaire whether they have a history of mental illness, when they checked that box, they said, no, you may not be certified. What if that was the case? Well, that's what a lot of physicians are afraid of. So that's why we're continuing to have these conversations, bring these issues into the light so that we can advance change. I am grateful that I got some help. I'm grateful that I found out that my mental illness was very much the root of my alcoholism and that my substance abuse was very much a symptom of a deeper lying issue. And I found that out. I came to terms with that while I was in rehab at Gateway Foundation here in Northern Illinois. If drugs or alcohol are starting to take over your life, it's time to get honest with yourself and get help. These days, many people are at home or out of work and the temptation to turn to alcohol and drugs to cope with stress and anxiety is stronger than ever before, right? Stop using now before it's too late. Gateway Foundation is here for you and your family with life-saving inpatient as well as virtual programs so you can access the help you need from the privacy of your own home. Don't wait to get help that you or a loved one needs. Most insurance plans are accepted. Call Gateway Foundation now at 877-505-HOPE. That's 877-505-4673 to schedule a free confidential consultation, or you can visit gatewayfoundation.org and get the help that you need today. When I found out at Gateway, man, that my mental illness could be treated, and then in turn, when I got that right, I could beat addiction. That was everything. So I'm so grateful for my experience there. All right. This is such a terrific conversation. I'm so grateful to Christian Cable for coming on and for breaking through what so many in past generations have thought was taboo, the subject of mental illness. I hope you guys enjoy this. This is my conversation with who I now consider a dear friend, Christian Cable. Good to see you. Yeah, it's good to see you too. I really appreciate you doing this so early, actually. No worries. I'm an early bird. I am too. And I've done some of these, you know, at like nine at night and it's miserable. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, if you get me after 3 p.m., my bandwidth has been chewed into significantly. There you go. Did you already go on your run? I did. I got in, um, I got in three miles this morning and I I, I did something that felt really good. I I didn't turn my Fitbit on. I just, Mm. I just went out for a run. You know what I mean? Yeah. Any music or just you? I Okay. Yeah, I, I brought music. <laughs> I'll occasionally go without music. And I don't know why today. Today, I probably shouldn't have, but I brought that along. But it just felt really good to not be doing the, like, flipping the watch and agonizing over the time, you know? You and your wife are preparing for a trail run. Yeah. Yeah. We're getting ready for uh, for our first 50K, which is... Uh... It's a lot. (laughs) It's a lot. It is. And we've done five marathons. So there's a certain amount of been there, done that. But um, with this, there's the mentality of we're going to have to be okay with not like agonize again, agonizing over the time. It's actually probably going to be more of a situation where I'll be looking at my pace and being like, okay, I'm going slow enough. That's good. Okay. So, so you seem to have at least a little bit of knowledge about, about uh, trail racing, road races. Are you a runner yourself? So I used to be, and I'm considering doing it again. My passion is developing land behind us. So we we have a big backyard. It's 125 acres. And we've been clearing brush. And my hope is to turn it into a ranch for special needs adults, particularly those with autism spectrum. Oh. And And so it's getting to a point where I can trail run in the backyard. And... I just dipped my toe in the water. It's been years since I've done it, but I've done, I've done four marathons. I've done one trail 30 K and, 
And I'm also just very interested in running culture. So I've read a lot of books on running Born to Run, Marathon Man, things like that. So I get running and I definitely get running with or without music. And 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 I will say that the culture of trail running is kind of fun, man. It's just it's like a mountain climbing culture. It's like little bit of Colorado hippie and I think (laughs) people people living in the back of their back of their Subaru (laughs) so yeah it's very it's very different and um I prefer and so I've never been a runner for time my first marathon was accidental when I was 17 years old and I was in a camp in Manitou Springs Colorado and they said okay you can either go bouldering or maybe it was whitewater rafting or you can try to climb Pikes Peak. And I'm 17. I'm like, let's go. <laughs> so so me and two other guys, I mean, one kid was on his cross-country team and he had no problem. Another team really struggled. And so we had to help him up and send him on the train down. And uh, so that was my first marathon. It was like a mile to the base, 13 up, 13 down took all freaking day but it was i mean it was to pike's peak and down. well yeah well yeah at, at that point at that point you're like ultra trained you can you can do anything at that point you're battle tested you're all you're also 17 so you have no fear at all whatsoever. yeah yeah i'm 17 and it also just it's about the distance covered right so mm-hmm. didn't matter i mean my excuse that it took 10 hours was well it was kind of up to the top of a mountain <laughs> but we went back and my boys did it um my boys who were both cross country runners, they got up and down that thing in like, I don't know, like five hours, something like that. Yeah. Just crazy town. It is. So, yeah. So I, I love, I love what running can do. And I loved listening to you talking with your guests about running. I think it's been very special to you. Well, it it sure has. And I mean, you touched on it, that the trail running culture, I, I think I've said it on a previous podcast. It reminds me more of a family reunion than it feels like a competitive oh, yeah. race. You know, the, oh, yeah. you just have that sort of like fellowship and brotherhood out there. And you mentioned born to run. I think we all, uh, I think we all, anybody who's read that, like we all want to be uh <laughs> Caballo Blanco, right? <laughs> That's right. That's right. I don't want to be the crazy barefoot guy, but yeah, the, I have considered. I have considered trying the barefoot thing, and that's just because anytime I hear something like that, it's like yeah. it's just so fascinating to me. And then I'll go for a run. I'll be like, "Wow, my!" Because I'll get a little bit of pain on the outside of my feet sometimes. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, and it's like I should just try the barefoot running. Maybe these shoes are what's ho- the shoes are what's holding me back. That's the yeah. issue, right? <laughs> So they've got, I mean, they've got some space in between. They've got minimalist runners. They've got the, oh, what are those crazy toe shoes? I actually had a pair of them. They were, they were Vibrams. Yeah. Do you know what I'm talking about? The ones that look like gloves for your feet. Yeah. So you've, you've tried it. I have. What'd you think? I have. It hurts. hurts. (laughs) Not a ringing endorsement. (laughs) It freaking hurts. I mean, I guess I'm sure you have to just kind of build it up and. I think trail running, actually, though, you get these little micro sprains and these little micro twists, which actually, I think, make you a lot stronger. So I found less repetitive injury. Like I used to have that um, IT band. Hmm. So I found less IT tightness, less IT inflammation when I did trail running, just because every step is a little different. Every step is a little bit different. And I think that helps you. And even when you get like a little micro sprain or a little tweak, I found that that you could usually run through it and be just fine. And it didn't hurt the next day. Well, and at that point, it's almost like you're building a sort of callus, right? I think so. As long as it's a micro sprain that you can continue to run through, it's, it, it's just sort of like that incremental growth, perhaps. I don't know. I, maybe that's the case. I, I don't want to get too far away from what you were mentioning before in, in this, this development in your backyard. This is fascinating to me. And nearby here in DeKalb, Illinois, just north of here, on like the very edge of the county, there's a vocational farm oh. where uh, people with disabilities, like they're doing exactly what you're describing. Yeah. And it's where we go for all of our plants. And the, the plants are outrageously healthy. There's such a great variety. 
But there's something about knowing that the people who are working there are using that as a stepping stone to getting, you know, to getting jobs and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And that they're feeling that empowerment. It's such a beautiful thing. What, what led you to do that? It's interesting. I mean, I, I grew up in suburban Houston and a half acre was considered a huge yard. And we went on the field trips to the farm and the petting zoo and saw the the chickens and the cows, and I just fell in love with it. So when we moved, we moved to this location um, right when I got my first job. So I came to Temple, Texas. My wife and I did for the third and fourth year of medical school. We stayed for residency and fellowship. And then we found this lot, which is in the adjoining town, Belton. And I was always curious about the backyard. There was this dense cedar fence rope. And so I did some friendly trespassing for years <laughs> and would just just get hopelessly lost, which is also kind of fun, right? So when you're in the city, when's the last time I've been truly lost? Not just my GPS messed up, but I was lost. And we had been to children's camps. There's a camp called Peaceable Kingdom developed primarily for kids. And I just noticed also that, Chris, many of my friends and colleagues had children with autism. And as they were getting older, their parents, my my colleagues, were really worried. Like, okay. I mean, some colleagues that are older than me were just even starting to worry about what happens when I die? What happens to my adult kid? So it's it's been a combination. It's been a love of restoring the land, clearing cedar, kind of cutting some dirt roads, and a recognition that I think it's more than just a stepping stone for some. I think it's as meaningful rather than work as toil. Yeah. I mean, even even if you go back to like the old Hebrew scriptures and you think about, okay, what exactly was the curse? The curse wasn't work. I mean, work in the Genesis story was given to sustain the garden, to take care of the earth, to be stewards. The curse was toil. The curse was this feeling that what you're doing doesn't matter. This feeling that cultivating the earth is going to be thwarted with thorns. I think that there's just Almost everybody can do meaningful work. And I think when you look at people who are not neurotypical, when you look at people who, I don't know, part of it, man, is just, I've been given everything. And I think there's a responsibility that comes from that. Well, and what, what's neat and what we're getting into here is that from a very like practical standpoint, there, there comes a point where public funding no longer you know, takes care of these kids in terms of a public education. I believe it's like 21, 22 years old. Yeah, in Texas. Yeah, you're right. I mean, maybe different state by state, but in Texas, they age out of special ed at 22. And because of that, like there's a bakery nearby here that does something similar to this. And I think that's really neat Mm -hmm. because, you know, the uneducated point of view is, well, we need to get these kids into normal jobs, normal, normal, normal. We need to get them into a regular job. And, but if we just get a little bit creative, we can get them that meaningful work that speaks to their soul. Yeah. And people like, people like you and your, your wife want to be patrons of that business, right? You're, Mm -hmm. you're saying, Hey, I need plants. I want plants that are beautiful and I want to contribute. And it's very different from asking people from straight up philanthropy. Mm Mm-hmm. It's saying, yeah, I recognize, I recognize the value in what you're doing, you're giving me a product. So I'm, I'm a little bit of a capitalist and I don't think that's all bad. <laughs> I think that I don't, when I've, I've looked at similar programs and researched some, I get disheartened when I see that they're like $7,000 a month and here's the link to apply for Medicaid. I, I think that there's a role for that. And I definitely believe that people that with special needs are the ones I want to help with that. I also think there's probably some hybrid models where, as you say, we can be creative. I also think that you're taking care of animals and it's some people even call taking care of animals therapy, right? Of course, of course. And it's the nurturing, it's the reciprocation mm-hmm. of, of, of the animal when and their their limitless capacity to love, how relentless an animal is with its love. 
And, you know, one of the things that I appreciate about going to Walnut Grove and, you know, vocational farms such as these is it, it gives us the opportunity to have conversations with the girls too. Yes. In terms of acceptance and, 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 yes. and, uh, and I hate the word tolerance. Tolerance has this negative connotation to me, but simply being aware of the entire spectrum of the people who we're living with. So Chris, I share your pet peeve. We, maybe we could form a pet peeve farm. Um, <laughs> I, I intensely dislike the term tolerance. My goal is mutual respect. Mm-hmm. And so when I think about LGBT friends, first of all, I didn't grow up having LGBT friends. And that was part of the bias of my raising. And that's been something where it's been an area of growth. Mm-hmm. And so one generation to the next, our children can welcome their friends into, their, into our home and know that they're loved. Yeah. To, to call those friends, those precious souls created by God as tolerated yeah. is just stupid, it, right? It truly is. And it's so funny how even, even with all the work that I've done, I, I slipped right back into that word. I, I think we have to be careful. Yeah, particularly those, I mean, you're, you're a member of the intelligentsia, you're a member of the press. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've got one of those robust, big vocabularies. I can tell just listening to you. (laughs) And I think there's a difference between politically correct syntax Mm -hmm. and a heart that's right. Yeah, it's true. And so so if we had to choose, I think we'd, we'd like to have both. I mean, I really feel about things as I want to treat someone the way they want to be treated. Mm -hmm. If there's a way of referring to them as a human being where they feel respected, then that's my choice. It it would certainly go a long way in terms of mental health at large. And you and I had met a couple of months ago. I had the, uh, I had the privilege of writing about rejuvenate retreat at Baylor Scott and white, where physicians, clinical staff are able to get away for a day, reset, get back in touch with why they got into the gig in the first place to help people, to heal people and to sort of be healed themselves. Right. And I know that this was, that this is deeply personal to you and it's important to you that that resource is in place. When you got a promotion in like spring of 2016, that you suffered a major tragedy. Your team suffered a major tragedy. We did. Can you walk me through what what that sequence was like and how how brutal that was? Yeah, absolutely, Chris. So I've mentioned residency and fellowship before. Essentially, someone graduates medical school with either a DO or an MD degree. And then residency training is between three to 10 years. And that will enable you to become a family physician or um, a surgical subspecialist. There's varied, varied times of training. And my job is to be the director of our residency and fellowship programs. We have approximately 500 residents and fellows here. And that summer, we lost one of our fellows to suicide. And he had trained with us through residency program. And it was heartbreaking. So we experienced as a community as a work family, just just this wrenching loss of suicide. And in fact, in, in a system as large as ours, we have about 50,000 employees across the state of Texas. It had happened before. We had lost nurse colleagues. We had lost other physician colleagues, other health professionals, members of the team that weren't patient-facing. And a team of heroic people, one was a nurse by training and became one of our chief legal officers. She and a dedicated counselor named Maxine Trent developed a program of peer support. And and so they were there. They were there. They had recognized that in the health professions, it's like our conversation about special needs people. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're people. And unfortunately, you just get in this role of being across the exam table from someone and you feel that you need to be put together. And to some extent, that's true, right? We have we have different rules for airline pilots and surgeons when it comes to safety. Mm-hmm. It's because there's a certain social contract where someone else's well-being is in your hands. 
And, and because of that, I think that we as a profession are very reluctant to recognize and to address the fact that we experience depression, anxiety, other challenges to mental health. We experience alcoholism, opioid use and abuse in very similar proportions to, to every human in America. And so Rejuvenate was put in place to address burnout. And I know that you've read about, written about burnout, but just this sense of, man, I don't think my job matters. You can get even deeper. I don't think my life matters. Well, and in that sense, I really think that I, and I can appreciate that you say that a lot of these coping mechanisms that for physicians and clinical staff, that it's, it's in line or comparable to average folks like me. I th- I gotta think that it's it's even heightened, given the pressure and, and and the daily trauma that you guys go through. Yeah, so I will I will confess, I'm hesitant to use the words trauma and violence in a metaphorical sense. I, I'm just I tend to I, I think one of the reasons I have a heart for non neurotypical people is that I tend to be pretty literal myself. And so I may be just like one click off of Asperger's sometimes myself. So when when I think of trauma and violence, I think of war movies. But I get what you're saying. The There is an element to entering the suffering of another and to feeling that you can't address it, to feel as if you don't have the tools to do what you need to do. Well, and I think there's this misconception that doctors got into their line of work because they're just super smart or because they came from an affluent family. I think the good doctors and I think most doctors get into it because they are empathetic people. And when you're an empathetic person, I maintain that you do endure trauma by association when you're in those situations where people are wounded physically or or, uh, or mentally. So let me... Let me see if we can trade terms, reconcile, reconcile our terms. <laughs> I think that you suffer. Mm-hmm. And in fact, a, a word I find more meaningful than empathy is compassion. Okay. And compassion, the Latin root of passion is to suffer. Mm-hmm. And I think when you suffer with someone, co-suffering, then you're right. It absolutely takes a toll. Yeah. And if you call it traumatic, <laughs> that's true. It is something about the cost of compassion. It is worth paying, but it has consequences. Mm-hmm. And so we had discussed briefly another reason why, why this was important work to me. And that's that, and, and I've heard a lot of your story, and I'm celebrating two years of sobriety with you right now. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. And so... Chris, each in our own way, you and I have both suffered. Now, we didn't suffer alone. We took our families along for the ride. Mm -hmm. And in fact, because they suffered with us, we experienced compassion. And that's a big deal. It is. It is. And I think that's where there is as much opportunity in suffering as, as in any season of life. Yeah in that we come to appreciate that compassion. I mean, may I ask, what did your suffering look like? You may ask, and I will answer. (laughs) So I experienced um, what I can only say in retrospect was a psychotic break in high school where I had completely lost touch with reality. I was delusional. I was paranoid. I was hospitalized a total of five different times. In fact, I had my 18th birthday at the San Antonio State Hospital. Mm. It was probably my least favorite birthday. It, it was something, and I was thinking about your story more. Chris, I know this sounds bizarre, but I was actually jealous of the kids and young adults who were in the hospital for substance use. Wow. Let's explore that for a moment. Yeah, yeah, because they had a reason for being crazy. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And at that time, at that time, I had never I was raised in a teetotaling household. Okay. And so at, at that time, I didn't have my first drink 
I, I snuck one little mini from my sister's house when I was in high school and tasted bad and it didn't do anything. So <laughs> okay. Yeah. I put it back down. Um and then I, I didn't have really a glass of wine until my wife and I toasted our wedding together. I was mm-hmm. twenty-two years old. So I was very much I understood how substance use or alcohol could distort someone's life. And I was just crazy. Yeah. I was um I was worried when I had the clarity to worry. I was worried that I was going to be what they called in the state hospital a chronic. And and a chronic was someone that had been there for years and years and really did not have a living situation outside of the hospital that was possible. When did you first like recognize that that's because as you're describing, like you couldn't put your finger on what caused these things to happen. Am I right? Like when did you first start noticing that just something was off? So it was the summer before my junior year of high school. Okay. And I was reading um, with Tom Clancy and Stephen King. That's what I read through high school, like everything. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, Stephen King can kind of mess you up sometimes, especially <laughs> especially if you're pre-break, right? Yeah. So I read The Talisman, and for for those that haven't read The Talisman in a while, little spoiler alert: there's a little bit of lycanthropy in it and some werewolfery. And I was spending the night at a friend's house. Honestly, Chris, I just kind of woke up in the middle of the night, and I thought I was a werewolf, and took off all my clothes and started walking down the street, was apprehended by a concerned and compassionate San Antonio police Wow! <laughs> and was checked in for treatment that night. That was the first time? That was the first time. Yeah. And it was, it was a complete break with reality. It was a complete dissolution mm-hmm. of the fantasy that I was reading and the reality. And so I was naked and confused. And that began a two-year in and out Mm. that was just excruciating. And my parents, Mm. I said horrible things to them where I didn't understand. I thought that they were committing me to imprisonment and they were honestly committing me because I was unsafe. Mm -hmm. And so that period in life was formative. That period of life where I do know what it's like to be restrained for my own safety. I do know what it's like to be, it's not exactly a rubber room, but it's close and they're usually green, which is not as calming as you think it might be. I know what it's like to be on many, many of the psychotropic drugs. Mm-hmm the antipsychotics, the mood stabilizers, all of the medicines I would later read about in medical school. And I knew what it was like to be hopeless. I I went from being a passionate writer, just like you, someone who enjoys reading and writing greatly, to special education where I could barely put together a paragraph about my bicycle. Wow. And so it's... (laughs) As I processed it later, I mean, I was I was raised as a Christian, and it felt to me like what I had put the most hope in had become an idol for me, mm-hmm. and it was just taken completely down. I had started to develop a pride in in being bright and being accomplished. It wasn't obvious. It wasn't arrogant. Mm-hmm. And I think that made it even more dangerous. And so that's how I've processed it in retrospect. The truth is, I mean, the just unvarnished truth is I don't know exactly what happened. I don't know how I got better. I, I know that in a moment of desperation, I remember it fairly clearly. I was in a clinical research unit shortly after I aged out of the adolescent unit. I was desperate and I was in the shower and confused. And I, I, said this really theologically deep prayer, Jesus, help. (laughs) And I went back and I took a nap and I just had this vision. It was just like a lucid dream of, of feeling 
a hand reach into my mind and removing a talon of insanity. It looked like an eagle's claw. Wow. Grasping brain, but because it was a lucid dream, I could reflect and say, yeah, this is, this is mind. And from that day, I improved. And I was discharged um, a couple weeks later. That was approximately July after my senior year. And and things got better and better and was off meds by Christmas. Whoa. In the course of five months. Yeah. You recovered that much to the point where thereafter, no more episodes, no more incidents, no more need for medication? No, sir. Wow. You know, I... <laughs> I, I confession, and I think you might have heard this in my episode with with Pastor Wes. Like I continue to to work on my relationship with God, and yeah, I mean the, the, this this anecdote really drives home that I need to do the work, man, <laughs> because that is that's compassion. But I'll tell you what, Chris. I mean, half half the books behind me are so I know this is audio, but we can see each other, and I'm in my library. Mm-hmm. Half the books behind me are about the struggle in my 20s to really understand just what happened, what it meant, what was the faith of my parents, and what was the faith, if any, that I would take forward. And it came out different, and it came out wonderful. So I'm very thankful for what I was raised with, and yet my beliefs are not identical. I deeply looked into different faiths. I have a, a genuine heart for people who are skeptical, atheist, agnostic. They're my favorite people. Mm-hmm. And and so I don't know if it was about doing the work. I, I think that just the one thing that's undeniable is you have to take someone's experience of life seriously. Yeah. And I, I kind of hold it openly and say, listen, I understand it, it, it could have been a delusion. It could have been the many chemicals that were in my brain at the time, it could have been so many things I can't understand, mm-hmm. or it could have been something that was supernatural. So the cause, I think, is up for reasonable discussion. Mm-hmm. I do know that the effect that it had on me was profound. I mean, it's like when you hear about people taking a psychedelic and it breaks a refractory depression or it breaks through PTSD. Mm-hmm. So whether that was mediated by a spiritual experience, whether it was completely physical, I just know that I was shattered and broken mm-hmm. and came out healing after the year I needed to take off after high school. I was able to enter college as a more whole person. Sure. And as bad as my 18th birthday was, my 20th birthday was joyful. That's the one where I met my wife and she baked me a birthday cake at college. And so it's been a blessing. Yeah. It's been a real blessing. Yeah, You went from that psychotic break to being that much of a catch that she baked you a cake for your 20th birthday. <laughs> you- <laughs> yeah. She even put, she put like M&Ms on the frosting. I, was, I went, I went home and told my roommate, I'm going to marry that girl. <laughs> that, that, that's amazing. I, what what I love about this, I mean, I, I I I don't love that you went through that, obviously. Yeah. But I but I like where we started with that, in that it has it was formative for you. Yes. And in reflection, like, do you remember at the time that you were cognizant of that uh, envy of people who could put their finger on this is why I'm damaged? I do. At that time, you, you could sense that. Yeah, and I think envy was probably the wrong word. I was afraid. Okay. I saw I saw that they had a path to to recovery. Yeah. Okay. And, and most most were sincere, right? They were like, "Hey, there's there's a substance that I'm using or abusing. I've got a bad relationship with alcohol." And part of their process mm-hmm. was encouraging each other, supporting each other. And I didn't see a path forward, Chris. Mm-hmm. I, I I saw that my psyche, my cognition was completely broken. And I was in a clinical trial of Depakote for complicated, at the time they thought, bipolar affective disorder yeah. with psychotic features. So 
I didn't have something that I could look to. I don't remember. Um, this was so. This was late '80s. I graduated high school in 1990. I don't remember if the movies, the popular movies about Dr. Nash, A Beautiful Mind, had come in, come out yet. But I knew enough to know that sometimes late adolescent, early 20s, was when young men had schizophrenic breaks. Yeah. And so I I knew enough to be horribly frightened, mm-hmm. and I felt. I felt completely helpless. Yeah. And that helplessness was taken away, which is an absolute marvel and a miracle. It felt, yeah, it felt like a miracle to me. It sounds like um, one. And I don't, I don't want to claim too much. What I know, though, is that I feel a sense of responsibility for it. So I, I think that with your suffering, you have put yourself in a category, particularly being open about your suffering where other suffering people will identify. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the things about suffering is that it's accompanied by shame, whether that's the shame of, okay, I'm an alcoholic. Okay. I abuse substances. Okay. I have experienced, perhaps still experience significant mental illness. What we need is compassion. We need people to raise their hands and say, I'm not what I appear on first glance. I'm not completely put together. And it is okay to suffer and I will suffer with you. Yeah. I'll stand with you. Well, yes, it's okay to suffer and it's natural to suffer, but there's some suffering that's not necessary. And for folks who are up against it, whether it be with mental illness or addiction, especially addiction, you're going to want to reach out to my partner at DUI and Behavioral Health Centers here in Northern Illinois. Folks, if you or someone you love might have an issue with drinking, drugs, mental illness, or anger management, it's time to get in touch with my friends at DUI and Behavioral Health Counseling Centers here in Northern Illinois. It's time to set up an assessment. You've got nothing to lose. Depending on your situation, the assessment could be free. If you're loaded, it's going to run you 80 bucks. That's the max. If you're a veteran, an NIU student, or unemployed, you're going to get a break. My friend Ron Parch and his team use their 25 years of experience to build an individualized treatment plan that's confidential and effective. They approach people in distress with respect, and I cannot stress enough how important that is to feel respected when you're going through something. DUI and Behavioral Health Counseling Centers has offices in Sycamore, Plano, and Crystal Lake. Check out DUISycamore.com or call 815-895-9000 and set up an evaluation today. Write this down, folks. Call 815-895-9000, visit DUISycamore.com, or you can email DUIBHS at gmail.com. Okay, Christian. So by trade, you're in... uh... Hematology and oncology, right? That's that's your training, and that, and that's and that's your specialty. Yeah. However, first off, I know that I cannot possibly thank you enough for sharing your story and providing that space and that that opportunity for people to identify, and for us to break up this misconception that that doctors haven't suffered. Y- you sharing your story is monumental. Now, I, I think about your day to day, and treating cancer patients, what what you do on a day-to-day basis doesn't just exist in this vacuum of of treating those illnesses and your expertise. I mean, this learned experience, you must bring this into your daily practice on a daily basis by by treating your patients holistically. Am I right? I hope so. I hope so. I think a misconception about oncology particularly is that it's depressing. And, And the truth is, And that's what I thought when I was in residency, considering a specialty. I had not considered oncology until I rotated. That's how we choose a specialty is we kind of rotate month to month and assist in different areas. And what I found were the doctors were happy to help. The nurses were called to it. They had this strong sense of calling. Many had personal reasons. Perhaps cancer had affected them or their families. And so the caregivers themselves seemed well-adjusted and the patients were grateful. Mm -hmm. 
and um, they didn't skip appointments. I mean, when I think about, oh my goodness, Chris, when I think about how many times I've lost 30 pounds and then found it again and how stubborn I am about changing my diet and my exercise for the better. I mean, someone facing cancer, they will eat only broccoli if you ask them to. Mm -hmm. And so they wanted to be better, but beyond that, what I thought would be the worst was actually the most meaningful. Over, Over the 16 years that I've practiced, I've seen people face death, that universal human experience, with such dignity, with such concern for their families. And it's in so many ways, it's a rehearsal for my own death. I mean, I know that in 50 years, my, my chance of being on this earth is very, very slim. And I hope, I mean, I realize you don't have a choice, but I actually hope I get to see it coming. I know that sounds really strange, but you can die suddenly in a car accident or a massive heart attack or stroke. Mm-hmm. Cancer Terminal cancer is kind of like getting hit by a bus in slow motion. Mm -hmm. But what I've seen as the benefit to that horror is that people do prepare themselves. They prepare their families. For the most part, there's a deep desire to reconcile. Mm -hmm. And then it just reminds me every single day to value my wife, my children, the, the relationships I've been trusted with. And then to a certain extent, it's how we began our discussion. It is suffering with. So when I train the young oncologists, I say something that I believe. I mean, if, if you cry with every patient or with none of them, you've got the wrong number. You have to just recognize the humanness as there will be people who you connect to, you share interests, you share affinity, your personalities mesh. And And when you lose them, it's okay to cry with their family. It's okay to go to a funeral. Mm -hmm. There will be others where you give your best and you respect them and you try to help them through and it won't be as deeply personal. And I think that's just, that's just life. That's meeting people where they are. Yeah. And I, I think it's also just recognizing that I'm somewhere too, that I am I am not a constant in the equation. I'm a variable also. <laughs> I don't, Yeah. I can't bring everything every day, man. I just, mm-hmm. I can't be the best dad and the best doctor and the best everything every day. I'm just not. I do the best I can. But that self-awareness that you have allows for you to make peace with that and be okay with that, which, which is something that I know the folks listening to this absolutely identify with. And it's something that we need to say. It's something we need to believe and something that we need to practice that it's okay to not be okay. Yeah. To stick with some inside baseball in terms of Baylor, Scott and white. I'm, I had the privilege, I had the privilege of writing about Eric Hammer, the chaplain. Oh, he's fantastic. He sure yeah. is. And I know that one of his one of his major initiatives that's a, a passion project of his right now is putting an emphasis on, for some context, the psych ward uh, was, was closed this past year because a, a local behavioral hospital had opened. And I believe that there's a partnership, something to that extent. But the reality of it is that you have all these patients who can't get in there because A, there isn't a bed available or because they're unfunded. So one of his major emphases is that when they arrive in the emergency department, that the right questions are being asked, you know, rather than simply like running down a checklist of symptoms, it's, it's a matter of, again, kind of meeting them where they are asking them what they need in order to start that healing process. Do you feel as though whether it's whether it's system-wide or whether it's healthcare in general, whether it's simply in Eric Hammer's jurisdiction, are, are we making progress? Are you seeing evidence of progress in terms of awareness of people's individual needs and, yeah. and, and the need to get rid of stigma surrounding these issues? So Chris, yes. And here's the evidence that I'll offer for that. I instantly recognized Eric's name. And the reason that I instantly recognized Eric's name is he's the chaplain that supports us as a healthcare team. 
Now, he's not the only one. He leads a team. But Eric leaned in to our efforts to support the well-being of our residents and fellows. Mm-hmm. Eric is a member of our well-being committee. It's chaired by Maxine Trent, who's that heroic family counselor that I just can't say enough good things about her. She is terrific. So, yeah. Yeah, you've met her. I have. Yes, I got to chat with her about the peer support group. The work they've done there is exemplary. So what I've seen is I've seen it actually go, I've kind of seen it unfold over the last, gosh, I've had my job for five years and they were working on it probably five years before, at least in germination. Mm -hmm. And I've seen it unfold from pilot projects, from things that required grants to something that are hardwired into our DNA, not just caring for, it's like a yin and yang. We care for each other so we can care for the populations we serve. And so I think that Eric's work, Maxine's work, has been adopted by people who say, yes, our Department of Psychiatry, chaired by Dr. Jim Bourgeois, has really worked on telehealth, saying, you know what? This is something which can be an entree. Mm -hmm. And we may be able to provide people with the lifeline they need. So I'm a big believer in the concept and this is not a Baylor Scott and White idea. This is a Christian cable idea. I'm a big believer in the concept better than nothing. Mm-hmm. Zero is such a special number, man. <laughs> so when you get somebody the access that says, okay, whether a peer or all the way to inpatient hospitalization, when you ask the right questions, when you demonstrate, I'm going to connect to you somewhere, that's huge. Mm-hmm. I think the greatest part of suffering is when someone, either because of a system or perhaps self-imposed shame, they have nothing. Mm -hmm. And what I've seen Eric do and what I've seen Maxine do and what I've seen our healthcare leaders do is say, no, we, we recognize that America has a crisis of mental health. America has a crisis of alcoholism, substance use, substance abuse. I know you're familiar with the data that the decreased lifespans that we've seen since 2016, I mean, we thought it was just cheeseburgers and inactivity and (laughs) silly Americans, you need to eat better and run more. It turns out those are deaths of despair. Mm -hmm. Those are people who are, are dying of liver disease. Those are people who are dying of suicide. Those are people who are dying of overdose. And so, yes, I think. That the fact that we're having this conversation, the fact that you and I share colleagues that are top of mind, mm-hmm. and and I'll assert that many others know of the work that Eric and Maxine have done. I'm hopeful. I I honestly think that even five years ago, this conversation was less common. And I hope that this is a microcosm of what's happening throughout the healthcare industry and, and coast to coast across the map. Maybe this is, you know, kind of dangerous to explore. I find what you mentioned to be curious in that you know, the, the decrease in the life expectancy or, or maybe not expectancy, but literal lifespan, the fact that it's gone down over these past five years is kind of troubling to me because I feel like we're we're being allowed to have these conversations more. So why why are those statistics being exacerbated if we're talking about it more? What do you, what do you think? Well, I think it just takes time to change the curve, right? So some of that may just be the lag between cause and effect. We're trying to turn a battleship in a in a bathtub, right? Yeah, I think so. I think so. When you're talking about something as such a hard metric as life expectancy, my hope is that, yes, identified in 2016, this is the outcome. Well, that didn't happen in a year. Right. My hope is, is that perhaps at 2030, mm-hmm which is what, only nine years away? We can look back and say, hey, we're starting to address it. And one of the silver linings of COVID was that we have new ways to meet more people. I know that for a lot of people, this is an an unpopular approach, but I'm continuing to see 
the pandemic as an opportunity. And I know I might be reaching here, but as a divine intervention to remind us or to actually point out to a lot of people for the very first time that we need to be having these conversations like that in and of itself, I choose to see that as an opportunity for us to turn that battleship perhaps a little bit faster. The one one thing I want to bring up about what what Maxine had mentioned to me, and, and this kind of speaks to the fact that this sort of change is the sort of change that people need to get behind from top to bottom. And where I'm going with this is, is with the licensure board and the questions that they ask physicians as they're getting their certifications and such. Maxine had mentioned that, you know, when, when they're asking physicians about their mental health history and any potential diagnoses, and the thought that this could, you know, run interference with somebody getting a position. One of the reasons why I bring this up is because it's been, what, 30 years since you went through your psychotic break. And I would hate for that to be flagged in one of these, you know, questionnaires and for it to compromise your licensure. Uh, but then again, you also have people who are practicing who are currently and, and will always be wrestling with depression and anxiety. But as long as they're getting the proper care and treatment, they're as effective as, as any other doctor, in my humble opinion. How do you see licensure boards handling that? How can they do things differently? Yeah, so, so I think we're making progress. I, I actually just filled out my credentialing paper sh paperwork every two years. We have to re-credential. And Maxine and I actually brought this to our credentialing committee, to our chief medical officer within our system. And, and our questions have changed. So where it's, are you impaired? Is there anything that, that's disrupting your ability to care for patients? From the medical board standpoint and from anyone that's in a healthcare organization, the safety of patients is first. Mm -hmm. And so when we err, it's on the side of erring with caution. So Chris, I had to, with original paperwork, say, yes, I'd been treated for mental illness. Now, I had the buffer of time. I had the buffer of even when I was in medical school, it was five years prior, and then the years went by. Maxine and I have both gone to the Texas Medical Board together with the endorsement of the healthcare system and said, we would really like to see the questions address current impairment. Mm -hmm. The case study that I'll usually bring forward is approximately, well, half of our physicians graduating every year are women. Mm -hmm. And that's been the case for the last five years nationally. And so that means that our practicing physician more and more are women as, as they mature through practice. And so the current medical board questions are such that treatment of postpartum depression would have to be disclosed. Oh, wow. And it is getting better. There is a federation of state medical boards, and we had the president of that federation as a guest speaker, and he has advocated to the medical boards to change their questions to be about current impairment mm -hmm. and also to work with something called physician's health programs. So what we want is a culture where someone can and will say, I need help. Mm -hmm. And we make sure that we enfold them, we protect their patients, and we give a very clear road to accountability and recovery. Mm -hmm. So we have many partners in medical practice and nursing practice and many other health professions who are successfully living in recovery. And what we want to do is create a clear road back. And then, of course, the balance is, Chris, I, I do think that the rules are going to be different in health professions, just as they are if, if you're responsible for other lives as a bus driver or an airplane driver. Our mistakes affect more than just us and our families, and that has to be paramount, is the, the safety of the people we're entrusted I think we can do both. So we have advocated for, actually Texas signed on to the Federation of State Medical Boards statement identifying that one of the root causes that prevents, and this is specific to physicians, although nurses have had similar findings, one of the root causes that prevents people in healthcare from getting health, getting help is the fear of their certification, the, the fear 
of what would happen if the board found out losing their license, losing their livelihood potential. And if that becomes prohibitive, and again, you alluded to it, not just in the healthcare professional, but when it comes to people working in public transportation everywhere, if it becomes prohibited and we don't foster an environment in which folks can get help and really, really optimize their life, we are missing so many opportunities as a society because we're missing out on those people's gifts and what they have to offer the world. I agree. I mean, there's a we've skirted around religion. We'll just make sure we don't talk about politics. <laughs> there's a saying about Christians that I also often found both poignant and and hurtful. Is it we're the only army that shoots our wounded? And mm. I don't want that. I don't want that for my faith, yeah. and I certainly don't want that for the profession I feel called to. I think that. We have to recognize that for the good of the person that's wounded and for the future good of the people, that person that she is going to help, we're not disposable. Mm -hmm. And and we shouldn't treat the young nurse or doctor, old respiratory therapist or pharmacist with a disposable mentality. We should treat them with the mutual mm -hmm. respect that says, you're a human first. We do think you're called to help others. To do that, you have to be well yourself, and we're going to do everything we can to gather around you and support. That said, as you very well know, for people in recovery, sometimes it doesn't stick the first time. Well, for me, it didn't stick the first 20 times. <laughs> well, right. And so if you were one of my colleagues and, and that became apparent, either you disclosed or, or you came to work impaired. And, and I know part of your story is you're like, holy cow, how am I getting away with this? I'm functioning at such a high level and no one's calling me out, right? If that became apparent to someone on our team, we would have to put them on the bench. And we have to put them on the bench because they're making some pretty high stakes decisions that affect others. And yeah. perhaps one of the positive things is that's good, right? Like I'm on the bench. I've got to change. I've got to get back in this game. Yeah, you didn't get cut is what's important to me. Yes, sir. That's a massive difference is you didn't get cut. You, you got yeah. you got benched or maybe you got sent back down to the minors where you could work on your tools, get that loop out of your swing or whatever it was so that you can come back and, mm -hmm. and, and uh, lead the team to a title. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I am so very much in admiration of what you're doing. I'm in admiration of you sharing your story and talking about these things because as you've mentioned in the healthcare profession, it's something that that isn't uh, that isn't brought into the light nearly enough. I cannot wait to see pictures of and to learn more about the the farm that you guys are developing. I think that's amazing. And <laughs> how how big is this uh, trail running loop? I know you said you could do it in your backyard. What are we looking at? Yeah, it's a good it's a good question. So the total acreage is about 125 acres. Okay, and the way we're starting is we're just following the cows, right? So you just follow the cows and <laughs> make it a little wider. So to be determined, and remember, I mean, for me, continuous running looks a lot different than for you, but we're hoping to do at least a 5K, maybe a 10K loop. Okay. Where you wouldn't have to do things twice. So... So stay tuned. And a, yeah. a lot of these events, that's what it is. And you just like these 24 hour races or these last man oh standing races, you just do the same loop over and over again. There is so much potential for that sort of event. Well, and I think that'd be cool if that event was incorporated into the fundraising of the ranch, right? Of course. And I know that you also admitted that you have an appreciation for capitalism. There is, <laughs> there is so much opportunity here. But no, like you said, it, yeah. it, if, if it increases the profile of the farm and and the soul of the farm, the the purpose of it and what it can accomplish, right? we got something here. Well, and Chris, yeah, and it's to your point, maintaining land is meaningful work. Mm -hmm. It's difficult work. Mm -hmm. It has value, right? So maintaining a trail so it... Nature is not as romantic as most people think, right? I mean, nature is cedar and rattlesnakes. And so there is some, there's some joy, I think, of bringing order to chaos. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part, that's part of the vision. It's like meaningful work is a metaphor. And you can see that land that previously wasn't tended, what it looks like when it is. Mm -hmm. 
and we just show up to parks and say, entertain me. And you don't think about what it takes to do that and the people that do the work. So that's, I'm hopeful. My goal is I just turned 49 and my hope is to see it open by 55. And just for the selfish reason that I'd like to enjoy growing with it for 20, 25 years, however much time I have left. That's beautiful. That is genuinely beautiful. Well, thank you again for getting up early with me. And I know that I know we, we've been up for a few hours, but you know, we, we started this at 730 in the morning, which a lot of people might think is absurd, but I had fun and I hope you enjoyed it as well. <laughs> I did, Chris. Thank you so much. Of course. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. All right, folks, what'd you think? Good stuff, right? And I hope, like we discussed, we can keep turning this battleship in the bathtub that we can make some headway on having open conversations about mental illness and getting people the help that they need. And I love his ability to look down the road and say, okay, by 2030, let's see some genuine progress. Because we have to take the long game because these long-standing stigmas these long-standing misunderstandings and practices are going to take a long time to wear down. But like Christian Cable, I choose to be optimistic and I ask you to join me. All right, gang. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being part of this community and for helping us take on these issues. I'm so very, very grateful for you. I strongly recommend chilling until the next episode. Until we meet back here, though, catch up with me on Instagram. It's 40,000 underscore steps. Every Tuesday and Thursday morning, we do a little IGTV chat. That's at 8 a.m. Central Time every Tuesday and Thursday morning. So until we meet back here for another episode of 40,000 Steps Radio, if it feels like things are falling apart outside of this space, right here, we are always coming together. Love you, folks. Talk to you soon. Take care.